What is the U.S. Space Force and what strategy are they going to be following? This is one of many questions Americans have as the new service stands up. Hi, I'm your host, Bill Wolf, the president and founder of the Space Force Association. On this edition of A Space Pro, this is a two-part series. This is the second part of an interview with Josh Carlson, who recently self-published Space Power Ascendant, Space Development Theory, and a New Space Strategy. A Space Pro podcast covers topics from military, industry, civil, and education sectors to gain a better understanding of what the U.S. Space Force is all about and why it is a critical component to our national security. Please go to ussfa.org and sign up for updates on all topics related to our newest military service. Listen in to part two of this two-part interview as we gain the insights from a student of space power strategy and the recommendations he has for the United States as we continue to evolve our space superiority capabilities. The views and opinions expressed or implied in this podcast should not be construed as carrying the official sanction of the Department of Defense, Air Force, Space Force, or other agencies or departments of the U.S. government. Remember on the last episode, we finished up with Josh explaining the difference between a blue and brown water navy and the correlation he makes and why that's important to the space domain. This is where we start off with in part two of this interview. We had a conversation or one of our members was able to interview Major General Select Deanna Burt recently. And she mentioned that and made the analogy of, of Lewis and Clark and how they moved across the West. And the fact is they continued to set up outposts to basically protect the economics uh, development to ensure that they were they were protected as they developed the industry uh, for that for the West. So she she made that analogy, and I thought it was very interesting uh, because there is thought about creating outposts uh, on various uh, various locations, the Moon and potentially Mars, where we have to or the military uh, has to protect uh, vital economic interests. And so, if I could. If I could actually put in a point on that, one of the things that absolutely surprised me when I was doing the research for this book is there are actually five nations that have pledged they will have moon bases, occupied moon bases by 2040. Um, those are the United States, China, who said they will have one by 2036, Russia, who said they would have one by 2040. Recent reports in the last, uh, I believe, month Sounds like they might be instead, instead of having their own, they might be partnering with China, which is actually very concerning. Uh, and then four and five are Japan and India. Both of them have said they will have moon bases by 2040. Uh, and so there are five major world powers that have all claimed to have moon bases by 2040 because they also see the, the impending economic boom that is going to be occurring in space. And they all know they need to project that power exactly like Lewis and Clark. And then a lot of, I mean, Fort Huachuca, for instance, in, uh, the army in Arizona, the original purpose of that was to guard a spring in the area uh, to, so that the uh, settlers flowing west would have a, a guaranteed um, source of water. The military's job in a lot of these expansions, especially, is to protect the key resources and ensure that the commercial entities which um, generally are not able to protect themselves in these environments or possibly from hostile forces, 
um, are well protected. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. You know, and, and you mentioned it, uh, talking about the different nations that expect to have settlements on the moon. You spend a significant effort comparing American and Chinese space power theory and strategy. What are the key differences you see, and why are those differences important? Um. So first of all, I would I would argue which space theory at, at this point I don't know if the United States has a recognized stamped space theory. I know that the Space Force is going to be releasing uh, some documents here fairly soon, hopefully, as far as um, the, the policy and the, uh, the, the theory going forward. And I, I'm very excited to, to both read those and to have a, a recognized space theory. I think that the, through my research, I mean, there is a plethora ranging everywhere from uh, space it is a pristine environment we shouldn't weaponize it at all. It should be purely economic and diplomatic, essentially. All the way to the far extreme, uh, you get um, Astropolitik, uh, Everett Dolman's book. Um, the most extreme that he used as a bookend, I, he, I've talked to him, he, he also teaches at Air Command and Staff. He, it's, he wasn't necessarily advocating for a pure military solution, which is what Astropolitik um, says but he wanted to have the far extreme bookend of the, the, the thought put forward in the book is, look, just go pure military. The United States has more satellites in orbit than anyone else. We just lock down the planet and then we're the only ones that can expand. That's a very extreme, not very helpful, quite honestly, um, view if you take it as a serious, as a serious position. Um, but so I, I would argue that up to this point, America has a number of space theories. The, in, in my impression, a lot of the space theory that is put forward with the, um, the, the, the legacy systems up until 1969 or so, um, there was a pretty fair mix of, of blue water and brown water, what we would call now blue, blue and brown water anyway, thinking uh, with, I mean, there was, there was uh, uh, I think it was Project Horizon. It was an Air Force project that looked at putting a permanent settlement on the moon in the 1950s. There was uh, Project Orion, which was planning on building nuclear-powered spaceships in the 1950s and 60s. I mean, the Air Force and the Space Command was looking, was looking very far-visioned um, up until, uh, at least as far as I can tell, right around 1970. And um, after that, it's been a much more of a focus on satellites in orbit, putting capabilities in orbit. Obviously, you have exquisite capabilities in orbit. Um, I would argue that at least since 1991, and probably possibly earlier, you could argue, but at least 1991, every single American military victory has been um, helped. The silent partner has been space power. Um, through the use of, um, obviously, reconnaissance satellites, uh, uh, global positioning system, communications capabilities. Um, these have ensured American victory around the globe. And so um, there definitely is, like I said, a part of uh, a, 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 a good part to the brownwater theory, particularly as, as it, it has helped. But American space power theory, I don't know if we, we, we don't really have a recognized authoritative space power theory. In a lot of ways, that can be a good thing as long as there is a vigorous debate. I think that that provides a lot more variation, a lot more thought-provoking conversation uh, than one, um, uh, you know, established 
theory would would have. That is in contrast to China, which does have an established space theory. In my conversations uh, with with uh, Namrata Goswami, um, they have a, a three tiered a three tiered approach to space. So one thing that surprised me very much as I was doing my research for this is I found a quote from China's lunar exploration program head Yiping Yang, who said, "Space is an ocean. The moon is Daiyu Island, and Mars is Xiangyang Island." This is important because China views the bodies of the moon and Mars as islands in the celestial ocean that they can occupy and exclude others from. This is also very important because both islands are claimed by China, but they are also claimed by other nations in that area with dubious claims on the Chinese side. Uh, the Daiyu Islands are also known as Senkaku to the Japanese, and those two nations have been feuding over that actively for decades at this point. And Xiangyang Island is known as the Scarborough Shoal as well, and that is, uh, was owned by the Philippines. That was occupied by the Chinese in 2013. And the Philippines brought that to the International Court of Arbitration in 2013, and China basically said, well... That's very nice. Um, we understand you have found against us and that you do not see our claim. That doesn't matter. Our legal experts say that that really doesn't hold any sway in our legal system anyway. And so we're just going to completely ignore the fact that the international court just said that we have no claim to this. Um, which obviously underlines the danger of having a China that does not recognize international norms when it suits them. Uh, they do not recognize them. And so letting them get there first is not a good strategy, in my opinion. Uh, the second level of Chinese space power theory is legitimacy. The, the, the Chinese government, in addition to geography, they have also built their Communist Party's legacy on the legitimacy of occupying and being the occupying space and becoming the the um, dominant space power by 2049. I've been told that it is actually written into their constitution that they will go to space and they will be the preeminent by 19, or 2049, rather, the 100th year anniversary of the founding of the, the Chinese Communist Party, 1949. Um, and the fact that they put it out in official announcements means that they are tying the credibility of the Chinese Communist Party to their ability to occupy space. And so they also see it as a area of legitimacy. The final uh, level that they have only been really, um, has only really emerged recently uh, is economy. And the fact that it is also an area that's profitable and has resources that are vast beyond imagination as far as what we would consider uh, normal here on earth. Some of the research I've seen, for instance, they're looking at, um, uh, mining near-Earth asteroids, NEAs. Uh, some of these NEAs allegedly have more gold than the entire Earth reserve currently. So you would, you would double one of them, if you get the right one, you double the amount of gold that the Earth has, um, has access to, for instance. Um, obviously, you're not going to be able to do a one-for-one -one because you, you bring that to Earth and that's going to crash the markets if you bring it too quickly. Um, but I mean, they're looking, I just saw a report today about the fact that China is hoarding materials that they can use to produce very uh, efficient solar panels because one of the keys of their entire strategy, they have done the research 
I think it was about 10, 15 years ago, a report came out that by, I want to say 2030, right around then, 2035, they will not, their economy at the rate it is growing will outstrip their capabilities to produce power for it. And they will have roughly a 10% deficit. Space-based solar power and is meant to augment that capability. And eventually, as they get into space, industrialize space, and now produce more satellites in situ with, uh, with resources in space, um, you can mass produce these satellites. Not only will China be able to fuel their own economy with unlimited solar energy and be completely energy independent, um, they will be able to start offering that to other nations. And as other nations start to rely on China for their power grid to survive, that gives China an amazing sway in this, in this future scenario. Um, nations won't, won't want to threaten their livelihood by, by standing up against China, even, even if there are some concerns that they have at that point. Great summary of the differences between the two perspectives. And I, I agree with you, there is definitely an opportunity for the Space Force to get that strategy developed and then get it understood and part of our national defense strategy. So that, that uh, doctrine is being, I know, written and, and General Raymond has said that it probably will be out here in the next, next few weeks. So we will stand by and continue to look for that. And then that's interesting, that point that you made about tying the success of the Communist Party to the success of their, their space development and exploration is, is very intriguing. So that being said, what recommendations would you have for Space Force leaders, just based on your analysis that you accomplished in your book? So in the book, there are two points, uh, inflection points, where America, in the scenario based on what China, I put the Chinese milestones that they have said they are going to accomplish on, on the bottom of the timeline, and then I put the American milestones that we have said we will accomplish on the top of the timeline. Um, the first thing I noticed when I was putting this together was that the American milestones reach out about 10 years, maybe not even that, and the Chinese milestones reach all the way out to 2049. And so the fact that China has planned that far out and it has told us what their plan is actually, um, I think is very significant. And that reads into the recommendations. I think the two key elements based on my research, is, the first one is the moon settlement. The economic benefits of being able to produce systems in space with in-situ resources, which China is already looking at, um, that, will, that will be an inflection point, I believe, for astronautics. That means that the in-space economic benefit, China will solidly tip the favor, or tip the balance in their favor, rather, um, through that moon settlement, and now the more, much more efficient use of space that they will able, be able to gain. The, to underline the importance of this, the, the reason that that's so crucial, uh, crucial is the gravity well. The gravity well uh, the comparison between the Earth and the moon uh, is, 22 times is 22 times deeper for the Earth than it is for the moon. Uh, to put it in terrestrial terms, the Earth is a city at a, the bottom of a very deep valley, and the moon is in a little bit of a divot, so to speak. Um, that me, that's why it took a Saturn V to get off of Earth and why the Apollo lander was able to um, get off of the moon all by itself. What that means is, um, as 
China has targeted to have their moon settlement by 2036 and industrial and commercial capabilities, no doubt, to follow soon after. As those develop, they will be able to use the resources on the moon. I already mentioned water. There's also iron and other capabilities. They don't have to bring the, um, they don't have to bring fully constructed settlements. They don't have to bring um, the actual hardware and then do something with it there. All they have to do is bring the gathering and manufacturing capabilities, which means all they have to do is have some rovers and they get some 3D printers or something equivalent to it, be able to melt down and refine the stuff they gather on the moon and have a 3D printer to print more 3D printers. And you now have an industrial capability that is proliferating very quickly and can outproduce anything on Earth because anything coming off of Earth into space has to, has to um, get out of that gravity well. It is 22 times easier to get it from the moon into space than it is from the Earth into space. The second one which feeds into that is you also start looking at in-space production. China has also said they will have nuclear-propelled rockets and um, spacecraft by 2040. Um, that is where I would assess that America loses the space power advantage. Once China or any other nation for that matter has um, nuclear powered spacecraft that can move at will through cis lunar and lunar space, um, whatever the particular possible weapon systems, if any on these ships, um, that instantly hold, if, if America is still struggling to protect uh, in a Sisyphean effort, the satellites that are currently in orbit and all the capabilities currently in orbit around Earth, all of those satellites are now held at risk because they are brown water, they are circling the island, and China ha has produced blue water, true blue water space power at that point. And they can hold all of them at risk because satellites are in a set orbit and they have to expend um, fuel that is limited to be able to move in orbit and avoid any possible shots. And even then they're moving so quickly, you have to expend a significant amount to alter that orbit uh, to, any, to any significant um, extent to get out of the way of something. The, the spaceships that are nuclear propelled will have to refuel. They can do that now by 2040. They would be able to do it with the fuel depots that China will most likely have from refining the ice and water on the moon's south pole. Um, and they will be able to maneuver at will, like I said, through the cis lunar lunar space and beyond because they can, they can be produced in space possibly or possibly rocketed from Earth, refueled at the moon, and then they can go anywhere else in the solar system that they desire. And so those two seem to be the primary strategic lessons. And then the other one that I think um, is a more near term is the... Um, is the solar powered, space-based solar power, and the fact that China is reliant on that based on their strategy to be able to maintain their industry that is outgrowing so fast, it's outstripping their capability to produce. And then one thing I don't mention in the book because I'm, I'm quite honestly still learning about it, uh, but uh, I was recently talking with um, um, Mike Lang from space, uh, Spaceport, and he was, he was talking to me about the commercial elements that are going to the moon far sooner than I realized. Um, there, are, there are going to be roughly four major commercial uh, elements on the moon. They're astrobotic technologies, Maston Aerospace, Intuitive Machines, and iSpace just announced this last week that they will be on the moon by 2022. Um, that is 
actually significantly sooner than I had had realized when I was writing the book that commercial companies were looking to be on the moon by 2022. Um, there are currently under the NASA commercial lunar payload services. Um, they have nine current commercial carriers. Each of those are supposed to be going to the moon between 2022 and 2026. And each of those will have five to 15 additional companies with clients on those, those overall landers. That means by 2026, there will be between 45 on the low end and 135 separate commercial pieces of hardware on the moon. The, the urgency to expand the Space Force capabilities to project force to the moon, uh, I think that horizon is actually is coming up very, very quickly. It's a sobering perspective, and it's one that speaks to the importance of the Space Force and its mission and what it is doing. So thank you for that. Now, if folks want to get access to this book, where, where can they find it? So it is on Amazon. Um, I self-published on Amazon, which uh, may or may not have been a good idea, but I felt it was important enough to get the book out as quickly as possible that um, I, I went that route. And if they want to type, just type into Amazon space power, one word, ascendant, and it'll come up. Um, don't type in Joshua Carlson author because um, I found out there's apparently another Joshua Carlson who publishes kids books. And uh, I, had to, I had to tell Amazon that was not me. It tried to lump my book in with his uh, when I first published it. Um, but Space Power Ascendant, one word for Space Power, and it'll come up. Gotcha. Great. And then... Um, oh, I'm sorry. Okay, and, it, and it comes in paperback and Kindle versions. I wanted to make sure it was accessible as possible. Oh, that, that's perfect. I, I think if you've not had a tremendous amount of requests for the book, you know, to date or sales to date, I think that you're going to see quite a few more uh, after this podcast. So I appreciate you getting that information out and of course, doing the research and then publishing the book. Now that you are a published author, what's next? Um, if I could actually just talk one, one quick more moment about um, the demand for it. Yeah. Um, honestly, the most, the most exciting thing about this entire experience so far has been the, the interest from some of the highest levels of government, quite honestly. Um, being very interested in, in reading the book. I've had requests for this from think tanks, um, several senators, and um, honestly, I just sent uh, a couple of copies to the, the office of the vice president, um, as well as the Space Council, because um, there, is, there is a significant interest uh, in this and this whole theory and the vision that underlines it uh, in the government. I can't, can't tell you what will come from it necessarily, but it's, it's been... Um, quite honestly, something I never experienced, expected to experience in my life. And it's been, it's been quite a ride this last month. That is great news and well-deserved. Now that well, you're published and a successful author, what's next? Um, so I've produced a briefing uh, in an effort to, to help uh, share the ideas that are found in the book in an easily accessible, I, I just delivered it uh, at level up quite honestly in a, in a, um, lunch and learn it took about two hours and um and i have the so i have the briefing that i'm i am more than willing to distribute um at no cost obviously and uh we're looking at uh i'm looking at partnering with uh, another as yet unpublished um uh space visionary that and coming out with a version two of the book 
this probably this winter or early early next year. Uh, he he has looked extensively at the uh, at the celestial lines of communication, and and he even has put together a, a cislunar recommended AOR sort of thing. Um, and so partnering partnering with him to come up with an overall theory for for space, both in the economic development areas and then also in the, the military and attempting to draw some, some overall lessons for domains in general. And so that, that next book will be, uh, will be even more expansive. And I'm planning on including in that next book, I'm planning on including a whole chapter probably just on the commercial um, investment and development of space because um, obviously I, I would expect that um, people perhaps more senior than myself in the space um, military side would have more vision of what's going on in the commercial side. But quite honestly, I had, I had very little knowledge going into this of, of what is really going on in the, in the commercial elements. And so adding that to the book to really help give awareness, a full awareness of what's, what's going on in the space force side, the military governmental side, a whole of government, uh, it needs to be department of transportation, department of energy, department of commerce, And then also the, obviously the, the threat brief, what China is attempting to do, and then also the, uh, the economic, the, what the private industry is doing. You have to have all of those strands to, for it really to make sense. That's exactly right and makes sense. So we, we will be standing by waiting patiently for the next book, but before then, we will look forward to helping to distribute that briefing and getting that briefing out so folks can take a look at it. So really do appreciate your time today, Josh. Any final words for the audience? Uh, I think, I think honestly, let me, let me bring up actually the last page of the briefing. I think that this is this quote from General Quast is probably the, the best one to end on uh, to put it in the frame and then to underline the importance of this. Uh, space is the, uh, quote, space is the Navy for the 21st century economy, a networked economy that will dominate any linear terrestrial economy in the four engines of growth and dominance that change world power, transportation, information, energy, and manufacturing. Whoever gets to the new market sets the values for that market, and we could either have the market with the values of our constitution, or we could have the values we see manifest in China. And the importance of, end quote, the importance of space power ascendant is looking beyond just the orbits, which is what most people would think of when they think of space power, looking out to the resources that are present and the necessity to, to project national military force to protect them and, if necessary, to exclude hostile actors from them. Um, if we don't do it, and China is able to succeed in securing first claim in these areas, and they can therefore determine what actually occurs there because no one else can challenge them. Um, they will be able to garner enough resources that they will essentially become uh, invincible in the world system. The, the amount of solar energy, the amount of iron, um, water in earth, uh, in um, the moon rather, and uh, uh, one of the uh, moons of Mars will will fuel their space economy in an air, in, to such an extent that no other nation would be able to compete with them. The real crux of it as well is on Uranus. There is helium-3, which is a radioactive isotope. It burns 
very cleanly and very efficiently and both to fuel the world economy there. I mean, there's hundreds of tons of it on Uranus fairly easily gathered, even by today's technologies. It's just not economically viable quite yet. Uh, but you, you're, if you're able to bring that back to earth, you can both fuel the world system without even space-based solar power. And you can use that to fuel rockets and generate uh, exceptionally efficient rockets. If China is able to gain, expand successfully and control the resources through a go strategy, um, quite honestly, I don't see a way that, that the world will be able to challenge them in the, in the future unless there's something I've completely missed. A true visionary, Josh. Thank you so much for taking time today. And like I said, if you've not gotten your copy of Space Power Ascendant, go do that today. And then we look forward to getting that briefing out to listeners and our audience. So thanks again for taking, taking time today and look forward to speaking with you on future podcasts. Thank you, Bill. It's been a real pleasure. I, I appreciate the, the very generous offer that you, uh, you offered to bring me on. And I, I would look forward to that. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this edition of A Space Pro. A Space Pro podcast covers topics from military, industry, civil, and education sectors. To gain a better understanding of what the U.S. Space Force is all about and why it is a critical component to our national security, please go to ussfa.org and sign up for updates on all topics related to our newest military service.